Okay, that's probably it. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you once again for this wonderful opportunity to gather together as family in the unity of the faith, Father. Thank you for your grace and your love and your mercy that you pour out on unworthy vessels, not just at salvation, but as the Bible teaches us, you save us daily. Thank you for sending your Son, Father, in our place so that he could satisfy your judgment against us. Though we didn't deserve it, he went with a joy set before him and bore that cross and said, Tetelestai. May we never remove ourselves from the very presence of that statement and what it means to us now and for all of eternity. And may we also share the joy that we have when contemplating such things with others outside of this church. May we evangelize them as necessary, and may we fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt against us, to make an evening like this even a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, why are the apostles so encouraging? Well, by grace they were prepared, and that is encouraging to us because by grace, um, through faith, we are prepared. And the pattern's the same. So let's not lose sight of the fact that all we've been studying is applicable to our primary course of study, which is the apostles. Um, I want to review Tuesday's lesson. A lot of good things came out of it. Uh, first, grace and love. I love this statement. Grace is the pure motivation that causes true, unselfish kindness, which is grace, to be freely cast towards another. There we see love in action, which again is grace. So love is behind grace, and true love motivates true grace. And as I said, I believe on Sunday, the great litmus test for salvation even is the love of God. And having a love that you didn't have prior um, as part of being a saved individual. So love is the pure motivation that causes true unselfish kindness, grace to be freely cast towards another. There we see love in action. The perfect example, of course, is Jesus Christ on the cross. Another great example of grace never fails is the doctrine of eternal security. I was thinking about that as well. Um, this theme of grace never fails has come up a multitude of time in our lessons. And um, one of the things you should think about is the doctrine of eternal security. I mean, how are we eternally secure? Because grace never fails. That's why. What God does, he doesn't fail at. That's the whole point. He's omnipotent, which means he's all-powerful. So whatever he wants done, it's done. And if he says, I've done this thing, then guess what? It's done. And if he gifts you something by grace, then it's done. And if that grace gift has ramifications in you, then those ramifications remain, and they're permanent. That's how we have to look at grace. And there's just so, much, so many doubts sown in our souls from day to day. Um, and some people, uh, unfortunately, uh, don't even understand eternal security. And so whether they're truly saved or not, that's between them and the Lord. But um, what a terrible thing to wonder about, to worry about um, whether or not you're going to be eternally secure. Once saved, always saved. But as the Bible teaches us, our lives are lived from faith to faith, where grace reigns supreme. Go to 2 Corinthians 12, 9. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. So the Bible teaches us, as we've been noting in our lessons, that it's from faith to faith that we live, where grace reigns supreme. That it's not just at salvation, but as I prayed even, God saves us daily. And here's what Paul said, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, after, we, after he was done moaning about a thorn in his side. 
And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient, he being the Lord. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Now, I'm going to read three verses with you, and I want you to read them in sort of categorical format, 1, 2, and 3, 9, 10, and 11, because they each say something different, and it's worth talking about briefly. He has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you, for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. So consider that passage we just read, and what you should see if you look at 9, 10, and 11 are three different portions of wisdom, three different statements. First, in verse 9, God's grace functions purely in the presence of human weakness. God's grace functions in the purest sense in the presence of human weakness. Verse 10 tells us that perspective is everything. We end up embracing weakness since it is the pathway to grace blessings. And then verse 11, when blessed with grace, we mustn't lose sight of how we received it in the first place. And that's a notion of humility. And so there's three things going on there, three portions, if you would, of wisdom uh, worth considering. On both Sunday and Tuesday, a specific aspect of grace orientation came out. You may not have thought of it this way, but it absolutely is a specific aspect of grace orientation, and that was you can't quit. That's grace orientation. A grace-oriented person, a person who understands the grace of God, the power of God, understands that they can't quit. Let me give you some more color on that. The great deception is that you can quit, which is a lie. You can't quit being a new creature. That's impossible. You can't quit being a new creature. You can't do that any more than you can change the color of your skin. And I'm not talking about tanning booths. Or the color of your hair, even if you dye it. By the way, God knows. And so do, the, so do most of the rest of us, by the way. In fact, you actually have a better chance of changing into a dog than you do changing into someone other than the new creature God has made you. You actually have a better chance of changing. I know that sounds, it's ridiculous, right? It should sound ridiculous. Like, there's no way I could change into a dog. Exactly. There's no way you could ever be changed from the new creature. And the new creature is made perfect. And all it wants to do is please God. You really think the new creature has it in its, in its mind, if you would, to quit? It's not even built that way. That's the, that's the same creature that's going to heaven for all of eternity. And there aren't going to be any quitters in heaven. So you can't quit. That's what it means to understand great. That is unbelievably encouraging. It should be. That you can't quit, even though in your head you're like, I, I, I quit every day. No, you don't. Because here you are. But I quit for, you know, six months one time. So? That's not quitting. The new creature was still there going, and God the Holy Spirit was like, you didn't quit. You just played this little stupid game, and you were deceived, and you had doubts, and you were tempted, and you fell away, and whatever. Up here on the board. This is about living out God's grace, being born again, and becoming a fruit-bearing tree, a la Matthew 7:18 is a permanent grace gift. Go to Matthew 7, 18. Being born again and becoming a fruit-bearing tree is a permanent grace gift that cannot be changed. You've, literally, you have a better chance of becoming a dog. And that sounds so ludicrous, and it's supposed to sound ludicrous. Matthew 7, 18. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. I didn't say that. Jesus Christ said that. 
If you're a new creature, that new creature, all it can do is produce good fruit. It's impossible for it to produce bad fruit. Your flesh may produce all kinds of bad fruit. But you're not supposed to identify. I taught you this in great detail. Our job is not to identify with the flesh. Paul's saying, who's going to free me from this thing, right? We have it. It envelops us. But we don't identify with the flesh. We are to, even though the world tells you you should, Satan will tell you you should, and so will the flesh itself. Pay attention to me. I'm the main man here. And you're supposed to say you're not. You're a corpse. You have no power unless I give you power. So one of the best things about the spiritual life is that, as believers, we may rightly have the confidence that even when we are tempted to think we can quit, to accept that thing as truth or a reality is to suppose you are more powerful than the God of the universe. The proposition is that you're more powerful than him. He said, I'm going to make you a new creature. You're going to be born again. And then you're going to turn around and say, I can change that. I can make that creature quit. First of all, it's the flesh talking. Because the new creature would never speak that way. The Spirit certainly would not endorse it. But as it came out on Tuesday, someone's endorsing it, right? Someone's saying, you can quit. Here's some more doubts here. Temptation and even faltering for a time is not the same thing as quitting. We call that stumbling. I'm speaking from the position of a believer. Temptation and even faltering for a time is not the same thing as quitting. We call that stumbling. You need to dwell on that. Up here on the board, living out God's grace. There is no doubting or questioning. This is the purpose we were born for and born again for. So here's a little parable for you on this, just to sort of illuminate what the Spirit's trying to say. A little boy walked up to a shrub and apparently began praying aloud. Every day he got off his school bus in the presence of all those watching, and he did this. By the end of the school year, all the children and even the bus driver were ridiculing him. But the little boy never lost his stride. He never doubted his purpose. And on the last day of school, all the kids were hanging out of the window and the bus driver yelled, What in the world are you doing, you silly child? And all the kids laughed and mocked him. The boy turned around and said, I'm praying aloud so all the angels can hear what I'm praying for too. And the bus driver said flippantly, Well, what have you been praying for that has taken a whole school year? And the boy said simply, I've been praying for all of you. And the bus driver said, But why pray to a bush? And the boy said, It's as good a place as anybody to stand and do what I'm doing. And besides, I wanted you all to see me and the angels to see and hear my prayers. I wanted them to know my forgiving heart. And the angels who were rubbernecking, a la 1 Peter 1.12, rejoiced and cheered. And the fallen angels were livid. This came up on Tuesday as a function of Matthew 18, 21 to 35. How many times am I supposed to forgive someone? Seven? No, 70 times seven. Satan despises forgiveness. Think about that. It's one of the reasons why he has rejected God's salvation himself. Just think about that. A person who rejects, a person who blasphemes the Spirit essentially rejects the pure concept of forgiveness. They'd rather earn their forgiveness. They don't want it given to them by grace because the flesh says, I have to earn my keep. And God says, no, that's not grace. So Satan despises forgiveness. It's one of the reasons why he has rejected God's salvation himself. In the realm of spiritual death, just think about this. This is in the absence of God himself, so to speak, separate from God, as we like to say. In the realm of spiritual death, there is no notion of forgiveness. You can pay someone back. You can pay a penalty. 
you can pay it up, you can, you know, our, even our society goes this way, right? But forgiveness, uh-uh, there's no notion of forgiveness. A forgiving heart is a godly heart, something Satan hates, John 8, 44. To forgive is one of the fundamental aspects of grace. Just think about it, for it is ultimately motivated by love. So you have to ask yourself, why, why do I have trouble um, forgiving this person or that person? The better question is, why do I have so much trouble with love? So this came up on Tuesday. Forgot how to love? Remember the cross. Seriously. Forgot how to love another person? All right, stop. How about what Sunday said? Forgot how to love yourself? For God so loved the world? God can love you, and you can't love yourself? That's the most cockamamie thing I've ever heard. How does that work? Arrogance. It sounds like, you know, oh, shucks, I can't love myself. No, that's arrogance. That's arrogance to the bone. That's false humility. Forgot how to love? Remember the cross. Isaiah 53.5. Let me help you here. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening, of, uh, the chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. Enough said. Forgot how to love. Don't you just love him? Think about it. Think about all he's done for you. Doesn't that bring you right into the sphere of love itself? Like, I'm that lovable? I'm that important to the Lord? Yeah, you're that important to the Lord. And he would do it all over again, I would assume. I don't want to speak for him. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? His, he loves you with a love you can't even fully comprehend. So the point is that you can love. And more forcefully, you will love. You can and you will. And how can I say that with such confidence? Because the very best of you, also known as the new creature, desires nothing less. The very best of you, the new creature, desires nothing less. Isn't hung up on, oh, I can't forgive you, I hold grudges. That's not the new creature. That's the flesh. The flesh holds grudges, the new creature forgives. The new creature reveals love, the flesh reveals hatred. If you can't forgive somebody, you're hating on them. <laughs> you're hating on God, even, in a strict sense. Doubting this or anything else given to you by grace through faith is the result of absorbing lies. You say, how can a believer end up in this situation? Lies. I'm not lovable. I can love everybody else around me, but I can't love myself. That's asinine. It's the stupidest thing on the planet, and people do it all the time. Or I, can't, I can love all these people, but not that one. That one's like unlovable. Really. God can love him, but you can't. It's when we take in lies that we begin to doubt. As we saw on Tuesday, entertaining doubts. Cast it off immediately. Wash your hands of it, for doubts are like a virus. The longer we play with a virus, the more likely we are to become infected by it. A mature person receives a fiery dart in the form of a doubt, let's say. I mean, who, who wants to say they didn't have any doubts today? <laughs> right? And the more mature you are, the, the more Teflon-like you are. It just sort of slips off you. It's when you grab it and, like, fondle it and look at it and kind of, like, hold it up to the light. Do that with a virus, and you're going to get the virus. Wash your hands of it. How, do you, how are you washed, by the way? You want to get rid of all those doubts in your life? You're looking at it. You want, to get, you want to love? You want to abide in love? You want to reside in it? You want to live it out? You want to live by grace? Here it is. Wash up daily.
And this, I love this question that came out. Doubts are not from God. So who are they from? <laughs> Seriously, go to Ephesians 6.10. Ephesians 6.10. So who are they from then? Where are all these doubts coming from? Ephesians 6.10. They're not coming from God. God's intention is to encourage you. He might discourage you if you're doing something against His will, but He certainly will encourage you for His will. Ephesians 6.10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Here we go. Who are they from? The schemes of the devil. These are the devil up here on the board. I'm going to borrow from McDonald on this because I like it. The devil has various stratagems, discouragement, excuse me, frustration, confusion, uh, that would be doubts, moral failure, and doctrinal error. He knows our weakest point and aims for it. If he cannot disable us by one method, he will try for another. And he's tireless. And he's got all these agents in our lives to do just that. They're watching you. And they're saying, all right, obviously this person has a weakness right here. I'm going to attack them directly on that weakness. I'm not going to attack a, a, a bull head on with his horns facing at me. I'm going to hide in the bushes and shoot him, right, in his heart, in his weak spot or whatever. Well, I don't know where the heck you shoot a bull. I don't do that kind of thing. But do you know what I'm saying? That's the same thing. Some of you are ferocious head on, but you're lax on your flanks. And that's where he gets you every time. Some of you are ferocious. You know, you come to church, you read your Bible daily, you, you, you listen to classes twice, you read the blogs like 50 times at least. Right? I mean, you're just on fire. And yet, somehow, some way, he gets you every single day in the same soft spot. It happened to me today in spades. I felt like, I know, punching someone in the throat. I really did. And it was, with, it was like with people closest to me. Like, I'm, and all I said on the, on the ride home, I'm like, this is from the devil. I said, he's trying to break apart my own family. I said, this is from the devil. And I see it. I was still, you know, I was still, you know, worked up. And, uh, but, but I was washed by the word because I was thinking about Scripture. Like, oh, man, this is ridiculous. What the heck is going on? And I had discernment. He said, step back and look at the big picture. What's going on? He's trying to break up your family, your extended family, your church family, everybody. He's trying to break everybody up. Because he knows there's strength in numbers. You know, two chords, three chords. He knows there's strength in numbers. And so all he's trying to do is cause these little factions. And he uses things like confusion. So in my case, I'm like, why, why is this going on? You know, frustration. Why is this happening? Why, why do people act like this? That's what I was saying to myself. Why are people so self-absorbed? Right? Me, right. Why are other people so self-absorbed? You know, and I'm driving. Why am I so self I should be saying, why are you so self-absorbed right now? It doesn't even anything really to do with you. You know? That's the way it goes. And Satan's like, yeah, 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 you know. And he's like got gasoline cans and he's pouring it on and you know. Anyways, I quoted McDonald here because I like the efficiency of his language. But we may do well to use his thoughts as merely a starting point, because as it came out on Tuesday. The abundance of schemes provides endless temptation for all of us. But here's the good news. We have an intercessor. Ah, oh, this is wonderful. We're such idiots sometimes. But we have an intercessor in heaven. Go to Luke 22.31. 22.31. This is beautiful. Because remember faith, saving faith, there's a, um, I don't know how else to say it, there's a cost to it. There's a, um, an activity to saving you daily, if that makes sense. In other words, there's a guarantee 
But the guarantee is based on the Word of God, who says in the form of Jesus, I'm going to intercede for you. And I'm going to pray, for the, I'm going to pray on your behalf to the Father. And that alone, even, is sufficient so that your faith doesn't fail. Can you believe that? So in other words, don't just say there's like some law book, because there is, I know there's justification that in doctrine as well, but don't just look at it that way. You're missing the love of God. One of the, prim the primary or arguments for saving faith and eternal security and all that stuff is the fact that we have an intercessor. We have someone interceding for us on our behalf who prays for us that our faith doesn't fail. Do you get it? And the collective of the efforts of God, the, the three members of the Godhead, keep us saved. There's an activity. I've taught this before. There's an actual activity. Luke twenty-two thirty-one. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. Oh, man, can you believe that? I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. That's Christ's attitude. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. In other words, he also had... He also had full confidence that Peter was going to fail. He knew, right? He knew that Peter was going to fail, but he knew that his faith wouldn't fail completely. Why? Because grace never fails. That's the whole point. And if you've got Jesus Christ himself interceding for you, guess what? God listens. Yeah. That's... that's, that's that's true love. That's what true love looks like. That's what we do for others, right? Isn't, that, isn't he the same person that I, I lay down my life for my sheep? Up here on the board, that your faith may not fail. The emphasis should not be placed on the potentiality of failure, but rather the effectiveness of the Lord's prayer. But I have prayed for you, verse 32. Peter's imperfect faith did fail at times, but it was never fully eclipsed. He always turned again. That's the thing with faith. It never fails completely. There are aspects of it. We can have, you know, artificial faith and it fails under pressure. If we have, you know, so much faith, like we know there's gradations, like you, you know, if you just had enough faith of a mustard seed, and so there's a gradation there. But perfect faith doesn't fail. And if he's given you saving faith, then it doesn't fail. So the emphasis, when he said that your faith may not fail, the emphasis should not be placed on the potentiality of failure, but rather the effectiveness of the Lord's prayer. But I have prayed for you, he said. Peter's imperfect faith did fail at times, but it was never fully eclipsed. And the original language uses that language, eclipsed. It wasn't eclipsed. He always turned again. I believe this is an area that is so stupendous that it's hard to even teach. It really is. I think the human mind just likes to fall into the, um, the granularity and the categorical thinking of, well, you know, once saved, always saved. It's a, it's a perfect judgment, and God's propitiated, and, you know, all the forensics. But we're not doing salvation justice. We're talking about the love of God. He's not some stiff, like, just go, don't, 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 don't. He loves you. Jesus Christ prays for you. He intercedes for you. So does God the Holy Spirit, because you're a knucklehead and you know how to pray, right? I didn't say that. The Spirit said that. Right? So these things are real. If, if, if they weren't required, then I'm thinking they wouldn't do them. Do you follow? So this is the beauty of, that we're literally like cupped in the hands of the three members of the, the Godhead. And that's stupendous. Why? Because they love us that much. They love every single one of us that much. That they're willing to listen to all of our prayers, like all day long, and intercede in the process. <laughs> That's unbelievable. How do you teach that? I don't know how to teach that. All I know is what it says in the Bible. So all these like lofty statements that people like to you know, build entire theologies and commentaries on, you know, his grace is sufficient. And they use all these forensic details and 
you know, these arguments about the justice of God and the righteousness of God and propitiate, and they use, you know, multisyllabic words and some made up, some in the Bible. They miss the, the love of God. Last time I checked, you don't have to be a PhD to be saved. Matter of fact, there's a preference in the Bible for children because <laughs> their faith is so simple and they can't even spell, never, they might not even be able to say propitiation. Yet they're saved. So this is really hard to teach. It's stupendous. It's unbelievable. I just don't want you to miss it. I don't want you to be a stiff because stiffs are cold and unloving. The point the Spirit's driving home here is consistent with the likes of up here on the board, John 18, 9, Part B. Of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. I didn't lose any of them. And he doesn't lose any of us. Isn't that a daily thing? Isn't that like an activity that he does? We must observe always throughout Scripture what Jesus, uh, that Jesus had and still has a very active role in our salvation, not just in his gospel call, but also in our being saved daily. My sheep hear my voice and they what? Follow me. So he's involved in the gospel call. So says our great shepherd. So is God the Father. If he doesn't draw them, they don't come. So there's an activity in uh, salvation, we know that, but what about daily? My grace is sufficient for you. Well, if he's interceding for us, guess what? As is the Spirit himself who indwells us, guess what? It's a daily activity. That's how you don't lose your faith. Do you get it? The Holy Spirit won't even let you lose your faith. He's going to be like, no, 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 you're not, no. You're not ruining this for the Godhead. You know, I know what you're thinking right now. I know you're thinking you can do that thing, but you, you can't do it. The permanency of our salvation is guaranteed by our Lord's love for us. Just stop. The permanency of our salvation is guaranteed by our Lord's love for us. I almost have to say that word, unfathomable. I don't, it's tongue tired for me. It's unfathomable. <laughs> the permanency of our salvation is guaranteed by our Lord's love for us. Stop thinking like a dork. Stop thinking like a stiff. Stop thinking only in terms of forensics. Are those things there? Yeah, I can give you the arguments right now. But I think you're missing the point. I think you're missing the point. We're not going to be talking about um, the nuances of his judgment in heaven. We're going to be in love. We're going to be enraptured in love. Uh, we're not going to be talking about gavels and stuff like that. But yet, so many learned Christians focus all their time on such things. Not that the arguments are wrong, but that's all they spend their time on. And they read book after book after book after book after book. Because there's a lot of them out there, people trying to be really smart, people trying to make a buck, all kinds of crazy things going on out there, and they miss the point. So he saves us because he loves us, and as such, he intercedes for us as a form of grace, and so goes the permanency of our faith then. Strictly speaking, while the potentiality of failure, the potentiality of failure exists, the reality never does because of the love of our Lord. Doctrinally, I'm speaking in a vacuum right now, of course, because as we know, there are other doctrinal reasons why our faith never fails, even though imperfect in time. The Spirit just wants to highlight the simple fact that one of the reasons that uh, one of the reasons is that Jesus Himself personally intercedes for us. That's not just some vapid statement. <laughs> We don't just say, oh, it's nice. It's like, you know, icing on the cake. No, this is the Lord, Jesus Christ, interceding for us. That's a big deal. He has a little, you know, he has some, uh, he has some uh, steak at the table. He has some uh, clout in heaven, just saying. So when you think that way, when you think that personal about his love, 
It's just another reason to adore him. Amen? It's just another reason to adore him. I mean, how can you not adore a man who loves you that much to intercede for you? We noted this recently up here on the board in his prayer to the Father, John 17, 15. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Why does Jesus pray for us? Because he knows the schemes of the devil. We saw this on Tuesday, Ezekiel 28, 16. By the abundance of your trade, your commerce, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. And I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Satan's trade was slander, lies about God and his love and grace towards his creatures. That was his trade. He's still, he's still in the marketplace. Do you understand? He's peddling lies. That's his, that's his currency, if you would. His entire economy depends on peddling lies. In fact, anybody that's not saved is literally part of that economy. We call it the world system. Some people call it the cosmos as a playoff of the Greek word, whatever. But they're part of that economy that the God of this world dictates and rules over. Like a governor sets the rules. If you're going to lie this way, then lie this way. If you're going to lie this way, then make sure this person trades a lie with you. You know, you lie to them that you love them. They'll lie to you that they love you. And then you'll have this little unholy union. And you'll call it love. And you'll walk down an aisle maybe even and, and, and say all these weird vows unto God of all people. It's like, what? what are we doing here? That one always flips me out. Ungodly unbelievers using holy scripture at their weddings. What are we doing? What are we doing here? Uh, what is this? What's going on? I digress. But those are the lies. Do you understand? Those are the lies that people trade off. You lie to me about your, your personal life or whatever, and I'll lie to you about mine, and, and, and I'll lie to you and tell you it's cool, and we'll just throw lies at each other. And Satan's like, yeah, that's all, that's all I want. And we wonder why we live in a loveless world. People love things, but it's really themselves or their idols. They don't. You know, some people would be so offended. Oh, don't you tell me, mister. I don't love my, whatever. Different kind of love, let me put it that way. So here's where we ended on Tuesday with a very practical perspective on satanic trade even today. This idea of a web of lies. Think of our three enemies in this life, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Lies from without, lies from within, and liars called evil spirits whispering in our ears. Big web of lies. But the problem is they all speak the same language. If you've ever taken a class or read a book on economics, there's an entire vocabulary you have to learn. Like literally, a brand new vocabulary. It's like learning Spanish. And it's hard. There's a whole vocabulary that these people use just to understand the principles and to be able to communicate effectively about economics, micro, macro, uh, whatever. They, there's, just like in the world, there's a whole language that you have to learn to be a part of. And the world brings up people, starting in elementary school, raises them up in a bunch of lies, starting with things like evolution and garbage like that, and raise them up, and they give them all the words and the language and all that stuff so they can go out and trade. See how smart I am? Oh, good, I'll pay you 100 grand a year. You're, like, really smart. You went all the way through the school, and you're, like, languages like pristine. And we'll pay you for it. Do you understand? We'll pay you a lot of money to trade in lies. And they're lost. So, anyways, I really enjoy this perspective because it reminds us of the nature of our true enemies. Now, I need you to concentrate on this for a second because <clears throat> this is hard. You can get twisted. More on this topic. This was something that the Spirit gave me after Tuesday as I was listening to Tuesday's message. The world will tell you that your enemies 
are those trying to thwart your flesh's best efforts to get ahead. They'll say, how dare they, you know, take that job from you? Or how dare they slander your reputation? Or how dare they do this? Or how dare, you know, all creature credit issues. And the world will tell you that those are your real enemies, the ones that are attacking the flesh's great desires to get ahead. But that's just a lie. To entice you into a battle on the wrong playing field. See blog entitled, Take Me Out to the Ball Game. A lot of people are playing a ball game, win or lose. And I mean, they're going at it like, you know, cats and dogs. I mean, they're, you know, people are killing each other. And the loser sometimes jumps off a bridge. They're going out like and they're on the wrong field. Oh, there's a winner and a loser, but they're all losers. It's a lie. The whole thing's a lie. You're in the wrong ballpark. And there's people in the stands. You know what I mean? Rock'em, sock'em, robot. I usually have more than one conversation. You know what I'm saying? It's all a lie. And I'm not, I don't like to use that word, you're a loser. I don't like that word. It bothers me. But they are losers in a sense. And I don't mean them personally. I mean they're losing because they're fighting. Even the winners who feel good for a time. They're losing. They're losers in the end. But that's what the world will say. Get on that playing field and invest everything you've got, all your time and your energy, into winning on that field. That field of play called the world system. Buy the lies. Trade as much as you can. And at the end of it all, you got what? You got a, a, a pennant? that goes poof, in hell. This is why the Spirit keeps telling us to step further back. Whenever you get that, that, you know that feeling like you're being, and I know I'm thinking of people right now, that you know the world just presses in on you so flippant hard, flipping hard that you feel like you're going to combust? Like seriously, you just feel like, I just cannot do this anymore. There's your doubt to quit, right? I just cannot do this anymore. Step back. Take a big deep breath and step back. Get out of the fire and step back. And don't let anybody tell you you cannot step back. Tell them use whatever colorful language you want to. Right? Say, hmm, I'm stepping back. I don't give a crap what you think about me or my life because this is about me and Jesus. And this situation I'm in right now is taking me away from him in his love. And I'm not having it in my life. I'm not having it. I'll lose all of this for him. Like Paul said, it's just garbage. I rendered all garbage. It's dung compared to knowing Jesus Christ. So when you get to that fireball called the pressures of life, go like this. Just step back. Just step back and get an even bigger picture. Why? So you can see things closer to the way God does. That's why. So here's a little analogy, obvious one. If you're an ant, you might be convinced that the biggest mountain is the one near the blade of grass down the way from you. Not that ants think this way. But in all reality, that little mound of dirt that you think is a mountain is actually on the side of a real mountain. But you can't see it because you're in the, you know, you're in the weeds. You get the point. As we learned this past week on the practical front up here on the board, Satan has strategy. It's not that Satan doesn't want you to run a race. He just wants you to run towards a different finish line than the one the Lord has set before you. Satan wants you on this ball field. Run those bases as hard and fast as you can. Swing as hard as you can. Steal bases. Steal bases, right? Do whatever it takes to get, you know, get yours. Ah, so the crowd cheers when you round third and come home. Yay. That's the race he wants you running. God wants you running a different race. So you have to step back and go, am I actually running God's race here? 
I'm not talking about running out tomorrow and saying, I quit my job, I quit my life, I, you know, I'm going to live in a cave for Jesus. That doesn't work because that's inconsistent with Jesus as well. This is about here, right here. This is about understanding perspective. It's about wisdom. Up here on the board, we saw this on Sunday, I think, uh, Proverbs 15, 21. Folly is joy to him who lacks sense. The person on this field is like, yay, this is the best. I hit a triple, and everybody's like, you know, reaching over and throwing popcorn and stuff. And yeah, this is the best ball game ever. You're such a stud. You know, you hit a triple. This is like the third time tonight. That's folly. That's the person who's getting joy out of lacking sense. You're on the wrong field. Kind of missing the point. But folly is joy to him who lacks sense, but a man of understanding walks straight. And as one final thing before we just dip our toes into what the apostles lack, because we do have to get back there eventually. Run your confident run your race with confidence, knowing again. We haven't been designed to quit. I don't know how else to say it. That's what the Bible says. You're not designed to quit. You're already on the winning team if you're saved. Now it's just understanding that as a living perspective. And everything comes back to the gospel. What did I start off class with? You forgot how to love? Remember the cross. Forgot what grace looks like? Remember the cross. From faith to faith. You always start at the cross. Always. And it's, um, it's, it's stupendous. When you're having the worst day at work, remember the cross. Honest to goodness, just remember the cross. And how little, you ready? How little all of a sudden your big job becomes. You know what I'm getting at? This is my big time, this is my moment, this is my big job. No, it's little. It's really little. Compared to the cross and the, the magnitude of what happened on the cross, one word, tetelestai, your job is like nothing. Nothing. It's literally almost, almost a comical joke, like a joke, like a real funny one. The fact that we would actually put that much emphasis and um, give that much power to something as fleeting as a job. You can take that job as a variable and pull it out and put what is bothering you in today. Some people's a job, sometimes it's like relationship stuff, sometimes it's, you know, finances, which is usually ridiculous. It, just a lot of things. I mean, a lot of things. I don't know, reputation. Oh, that person slandered me. Oh, what are we back in high school? You actually care? You really care at this juncture what other people think of you? It's none of your business. It's literally none of your business what anybody else thinks of you. If, you're right with the, if you are right with the Lord, you're good. Period. Even if you get persecuted. If you're right with... Because the only person you have to live on right terms with at the end of the day is the Lord. Because it's the Lord you serve. In every portion of your life. In the home, at work, in the church. On and on and on. It's the Lord that you serve. And he says, you know what? I didn't even design you to quit. So as long as you serve me and you keep remembering about me, and you can start with the cross every time. You can be 190 years old, Bill, right? And, and every day, every day, I don't know what the problem is with people. They think, they think in human terms like, oh, well, I can't go back to school for, you know, English grammar because I did that when I was like in third grade. And then why are you talking right like an idiot? You know what I'm saying? Like, why is you, in other words, the, the, coral, the, the, the analogy is, okay, you can't go back to the cross every day, then why is your life a mess? Maybe you need to go back to the cross every single day. People are weird, though. They say, ah, I know the cross. I know salvation. I got the doctrine. It's right here in my back pocket. See, I got it down to like three words. It's like, blah, blah, blah. But they're Hebrew and Greek, so you wouldn't understand. Do you know what I'm getting at, right? We prefer human progression when we've already sipped from the fountain it's unbelievable the sweetest thing is the gospel 
This whole book is the gospel. This whole thing is about the gospel. Old Testament, New Testament, it's all about building up, explaining, defending the gospel. So what are we doing then? How do we not go back to the cross? The very linchpin of the gospel. I think I actually think that it's folly not to do that every day. Not to wake up and say, thank you, Lord, for going to the cross for me. He, he didn't go through all of that and then design schleps that are going to quit. He didn't go through all that to save you only to lose you. He didn't make quitters. He made winners. Because that's what happened when you were saved. You are now a winner. And winners don't quit. How's that old saying? Quitters never win, winners never quit. Is that what it is? Right? Yeah, quitters never win, winners never quit. Not to be weird, but we haven't been designed to quit. But yet, I've got to quit this lesson. <laughs> Thought I was going to get into the, the, you know, the mainstream part of this, but God wants us to end on that. So keep that principle in mind as we continue to study out those who embody that principle. Think about the apostles. Did they ever quit? Nope. All but one was martyred. They didn't quit. Did they screw up? Yep. Yep. Did they get any special, you know, special thing that we don't get? Nope. They got saving faith. They understood the love of God. Jesus prayed for them. He prays for us. The Spirit intercedes for them. The Spirit has interceded for them. The Spirit intercedes for us. They didn't have special provisions even. That's awesome, isn't it? Didn't you see the freedom yet? All of a sudden, it like washes away. All the, 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 the perceived pressure is like, it literally has no, no uh, tentacles anymore. No barbs. It's like, for real, I just spent this last week worrying about something that you're telling me, the Spirit's telling me doesn't even matter in the grand scheme of things. I know, I've been there, done that. I do it all the time. I catch myself all the time. <laughs> I'm going to punch somebody in the throat. What for? <laughs> I don't even know. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? What are we doing? That's when we have to step back, see the big picture, and say, I just got lied to, and I bought it. I literally just got lied to, and I was like, oh, no, 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 this is so good, yeah. <laughs> right? This is the best lie ever. <laughs> and then I don't know why I'm miserable. I don't want to hit people. That's ridiculousness. That's ridiculousness. But we're ridiculous, right? But we won't quit. Amen? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the privilege of studying your word here this evening together as family in the unity of faith. Thank you for giving us the word and thank you for uh, washing us over with it. Thank you for the presence of the Spirit in our lives from behind this pulpit even. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things that we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.